this week we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. Here's our primary text. So if you want to find that in your Bibles, um, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the chair ahead of you. There's an average of about three in the row that you'd be sitting behind. So if there's not one immediately in front of you, just look to the left or to the right. While you're getting there, I'm actually going to read from Numbers 24 as well this morning to give us a little bit of background, Um, because we're going to be looking at the wise men, and one particular element that I think would be helpful for us as we jump into this Matthew 2 passage would be to kind of understand where did this whole idea of the star come from? I don't know if you've ever spent some time in your study looking up what, what was the prophecy that brought this star about? This is kind of unusual. It's a really big deal, isn't it? I mean, this is a supernatural event. There's been attempts to take this idea of the star leading the wise men to Bethlehem and try to explain it with natural phenomenon. Maybe it was a comet. Maybe it was a supernova so far away. There's all sorts of ideas, but nothing really accounts for the fact that the star appears and then disappears and then reappears and moves. I mean, that's... That's phenomenal, isn't it? It's supernatural. So this happens in Matthew 2, and we're kind of like, okay, well, what, what did we see in the Old Testament that points us there? It's Numbers 24. It's not Isaiah. It's not you know, any, any kind of messianic prophecy that you would expect. But in Numbers 24, if you want to read with me, I'm going to be at 16 and 17. And again, we'll land in Matthew chapter 2, uh, verse 1 to start. But listen to this from Numbers 24, verse 16. This is, um, to give you some background information, this is just about, it's over a thousand years earlier than the passage we're really going to focus on today. And this is when Israel has been freed from slavery in Egypt, and they are on their way to the promised land, and and they, they meet some enemies along the way, and God is just defeating all their enemies. He's showing himself to be far more powerful than the, the false gods of all the people around Israel. And this Moab king, Balak, notices it and says, we're going to have to do something different than the old sword, spear, and shield, bow and arrow kind of idea. So back in those days, you could, in fact, hire someone to prophesy for you, or in this case, against your enemy. So Balak hires a prophet named Balaam, and he says, what I want you to do is stand up on that mountain and prophesy against Israel. They are my enemies. I want them to be destroyed. I'm going to need some divine intervention here prophesy something against them. I don't care how elaborate, how beautiful it is. He didn't give details. He just said, prophesy against my enemies so that they'll be defeated. And this is what Balaam says. Verse 16. The oracle of him who hears the words of God, knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. You might pause there at the end of verse 16 and have Balak say, yeah, this is going to be really good. What a setup, right? Wow, he hears the words of God. He knows the knowledge of the Most High. He sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. Yes, this is going to be so good. Verse 17, I see him now. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Shem. It's kind of hilarious, isn't it? When you think about the setting of all of this, And Balak going, verse 16 was good. Bring me verse 17. Let's go. Wait, that is not what I paid you for. 
my money is in your hands, and you just did the exact opposite of what I wanted you to do. This would have been like getting a great starting pitcher, and when the pitcher takes the mound and starts his windup, and you know, the manager's thinking this is going to be really good, first strike to start off his career, the ball switches to an underhand lob, handed off to the batter, who hits a record-breaking distance home run. This is the disappointment that Balak had because all of his hopes were dashed in this moment. But what is it that Balaam saw, and what does it have to do with our passage today that we have not read yet? Look at 17 again. I see him, but not now. There's something future about this prophecy. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. That is the star that we put on top of our Christmas trees. The star that led the way for the wise men from the east to find the Christ child in Bethlehem. Shall rise out of Israel. And a scepter as well, a picture of rule and triumph over enemies. The star being a sign and the scepter being evidence of power behind this one who is to come over a thousand years later. And the immediate context, we're like, yeah, God is better than all the false gods around. Moab has no chance. Because when Moab prophesies against Israel, it actually goes in Israel's favor. There is nothing that the sovereign God cannot overcome. And what we see, what we're about to see in this passage, is God's ability to draw all kinds of people to worship Christ, the true king. Would you read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12? I'll read them if you'd follow along, please. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, and I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, till it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country, by another way. Would you bow your heads and pray with me as we consider God's word this morning? Father, we thank you for this magnificent story. Your ability to draw all kinds of people to Christ. And Lord, as we consider these words and we think of how we might apply them to our life today, would you begin, even in these first moments, to help us consider your sovereign rule over all things and the great power that you have to draw people and, and that you don't call us to do the drawing. You call us to testify. Lord, would you perhaps strengthen us to open our mouths, open our lives so that people might see and hear the wondrous mystery 
God's own son given to us. We ask for your help now, for your spirit to convict, to affirm, encourage, to build up, and to draw us ever closer to Christ, becoming more like him according to your work. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. God has shown throughout history, from Numbers 24 to Matthew chapter 2, to every page of the Bible that you hold in your hands, he has shown that he is able to draw all kinds of people to worship Christ, the true king. And that he is, in fact, able to draw unexpected people to worship Christ, the true king. You heard this last week when David shared with us about the shepherds, the shepherds being the lowest of the low, those that you would not invite to a, even a party or a get-together or perhaps a town hall meeting. You wouldn't want to see those people there. And here in Matthew, we see sort of the opposite in many ways, right? The shepherds were near and yet outcasted. And the magi, the wise men, were far and, and seemingly completely unremoved from the people of God. When we read the story of the Magi, what we don't have is, is answers to a lot more questions than we would like to ask. Who were they? Where'd they come from? Babylon, Persia? How many were there? I, I hate this, but it, it's true. Just about every Christmas, somebody preaches a sermon where they dismantle your nativity scene in your house, right? And this is the only thing I'm going to do. We don't know if there were three, okay? I'm really sorry. There were at least two, but there were not exactly three that we know of. Three gifts. Two of those guys could have given those three gifts. Or 200 of them could. I don't know. We don't have that number exactly here. We also know they weren't most likely not traveling by themselves. They would have perhaps been traveling with dozens upon dozens of servants and attendants. These are not... Uh, given the fact of their gifts and their welcome by Herod, we, we can recognize that these were men of stature, of, of notice among uh, the culture. Even though these were far off men, they, they were still ones that would have been recognized as, oh, these are people who are very important. And it's very easy for us as we consider, you know, comparing the shepherds and the magi, that we might say, okay, you know what? God really loves the lowest of the low and only the lowest of the low. Or perhaps we might be able to say, God really just loves the people who are successful and who can prove that he is faithful. And so he really only loves those of the higher stature, those who you could say, look at the blessing of the Lord in my life. And yet what we see, again, throughout all of Scripture, is that your status, your financial profile, your acceptance in culture, your, uh, your complete outside of culture, lifestyle, whatever it might be, God is able to draw all kinds of people to worship Christ, the true king. He has shown this to us time and time again. So we don't know who these magi were exactly. If they came from Babylon, they would have been traveling, traveling 800 miles, about 40 days of travel. Do we know how they got on God's team in one sense? Did he recruit them and say, hey, this is going to be a really great addition, these one, two, three, four, ten dozen, whatever, wise men? We don't know. We do know that God's word shows us that there is no one who is worthy of coming to worship Christ. None of us can say, if anybody's going to be invited to the Christmas party, it's me. It's the Magi. 
The shepherds can stand outside, but the magi should be given a place of honor. If this is sounding like a passage in James, then you should look it up later. We don't know how these men were drawn to discover the location of the king of the Jews, but that is what they come to do, is it not? Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, and what did they say? We've taken the catechism classes. We've joined membership in your local church. We've studied all the Torah. No, you don't get any of that. They just simply say, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And what an interesting thing to say to who are they asking this question? The king of the Jews. Uh-oh. Even in their question, they're acknowledging that the one who sits as king of the Jews is not the true king of the Jews. It's fascinating, isn't it? We can see that the draft pool that the Lord gathers his people from is global. And that they can come in with a word such as, where is he who was born king of the Jews, and have some of the most striking conversations Herod would have ever experienced in his life from a group of men who presumably could have very little knowledge of God or what he's done in human history. So what is God doing in drawing them to Christ? He is showing his sovereign ability to call whomever he chooses to worship his son. As we've said already, he's able to draw all kinds of people, and he's showing his sovereign ability to do so. That Israel that was meant to be a city on a hill that would draw all peoples to worship the one true God and has failed at that, God is not sitting there going, well, once they get their act together, maybe we can start drawing people. No, he's doing that going to be many surprises in the kingdom of God. Jesus says this in the Gospels, that, that many will sit down at the right and left hand of Abraham and from far off places that you never expect. And this is what's going on with these magi. Verse 11 says, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Their goal is very clear. It was not simply to come and present themselves and say, here we are. You're welcome. Gifts, stuff you obviously don't have, manger child. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. Let us bestow upon you something that would really, really enhance your life. Health, wealth, prosperity. All these good things that everyone works towards. This is not their attitude at all. When they saw the child, they did what? Look at verse 11 again fell down and worshipped him. Isn't it wonderful that we have these words so often they, that people fall down and worship? These magi would not have been coming in with common clothing. They would have come in just ornate and, and clearly the life of the party, clearly stand out amongst the normal crowd. And yet these are the men who fell down to worship Christ the King. They didn't fall down and worship Herod. They fell down and worshipped a baby because they knew he was born king of the Jews. So God is showing that he can draw all kinds of people, but he's also showing in this passage the problem with those whom we would expect to be included in worship. Because what other characters do we have? We have Herod, we have the scribes, we have Jerusalem. You could count Mary in this as well, but we're going to leave her for later. But he's showing that there is a problem with those who are not far but near, and yet those who are near, their hearts are in fact far as a prophet might have said in the Old Testament as well, right? It is in one sense that they are wearing the jersey, but they're wronging to, running to the wrong side of the field, if we can mix sports metaphors. And these three characters 
receive this news from the, from the Magi and respond very differently. And this, this would be the conflict, the problem that we need to recognize in this passage and start to examine our own hearts in this moment and consider which of these characters has some connection to the way I live my life of worship today. First of all, let's think about Herod. If you know a little bit about Herod, he had a title. He was called Herod the what? Does anybody know? Great. Herod the Great. You know, if you're going to have a the after your first name and a word that follows it, it doesn't get much better than great, does it? Herod the Great. This was a man who built dozens of theaters, palaces, temples, cities. This was a man who was appointed by Rome to rule over the Jews. And how do you think the Jews took that? Of course, there's an obvious animosity between the the city of Jerusalem particularly and Herod, but, but all of the Jewish people saying this is not someone who is to be our king. Rome is our true enemy here because they're telling us who our king's supposed to be. And just in that moment, the God's people are getting very spiritual about this and saying we should be having somebody in the line of David. It would be good for them, for us, to remember who in the line of David afterwards really did a very good job or not a very good job in that kingly role. And that Herod, though terrible and awful, and, and we see you know, even in this chapter how terrible and awful he is, isn't too far removed from some of the worst kings that had come after David, in fact. What does the coming of Christ mean to Herod? It means loss. He's going to lose something. Yeah, and the Magi come in. Wow, Magi are here. Ooh, Herod straightens his bow tie, sits up a little bit more on his throne. What do they have to say to me? Oh, do they know I am Herod the Great? Hey, where's he who's born king of the Jews? Can you point us in the right direction? We figured you'd know you're sitting on the throne. You probably would be one of the people who would know who the real king is. Herod is furious. Herod is the builder of a contrary kingdom. Everything that he has built up in his life has been in complete opposition to this king of the Jews that the Magi speak of. And when he hears that the king of the Jews is born, the rightful king has been born, he stands to lose everything. So, the builder of a contrary kingdom. Do you yourself ever face the fear of losing your contrary kingdom when you think of what God's call on your life might be? When you consider the ministry opportunities that you have or the, the role that you are to play as a witness to Christ in your day-to-day -day life and you think about why I might not be doing those kinds of things, does, does it ever occur to you that you may be building something contrary to what Christ is calling you to and that if you were to walk in obedience, what would you have to do with the thing you've been building? building. You'd have to tear it down, right? It's going to have to go. Herod cannot be king and Jesus be king at the same time, can they? Let's consider the scribes. Call the scribes a group of robotic reporters in this passage. You see that as the magi come and ask the king, the king doesn't know. So in verse 4, he assembles the chief priests and the scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And there's a great contrast in biblical knowledge here, isn't there? Maybe here we're going to be talking about people who are anticipating the wondrous mystery, ready to worship the true king. He gathers them all together. He says, what? what's going on here? There's a king of the Jews? Nobody told me about that. They keep telling me I'm the king. 
where is he supposed to be born? What, what should I say to these guys? You know, presuming that he sent the Magi out to his waiting room for a minute. Well, the chief priests and scribes have no problem at all, it seems. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judah, for so it is written by the prophet, you of Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Boom. They're basically Google to Herod, right? That, that the Magi come in and he's like, hold on just a second, Magi. King of the Jews. Oh, Bethlehem. Yeah, that's where. They come in, they report to Herod, and then what do they do? Do we hear from them again? Many years later, in the ministry of Jesus, of course, we hear about scribes and Pharisees and chief priests and those kinds of things. But at this moment, they report what they have to say. As far as we know, they do nothing else after that. There is a testimony from some very unusual guests that the king of the Jews has been born and we're coming to look for him. And the scribes and the chief priests who should have been first in line to say, hey, we should be looking in Bethlehem. They don't even go. It seems as though they go right back to business as usual after this report to Herod. Can we go back to sleep now? Those in the middle of the night. Can we get back to work? I'm, I'm working on uh, trans, transcribing or rather writing down the, uh, the book of Deuteronomy. I'm in the middle of that. It's kind of important. Next time you have Bible trivia, maybe just call a couple of us together. You don't need all of us for that. They were Bible experts, but they robotically report to Herod and are personally unmoved. They return to business as usual. So with Herod, the builder of a contrary kingdom, with now the scribes, a group of robotic reporters, I have to ask you, are we ever literally unmoved to worship? And, and I'm not talking about like every Sunday morning, you ought to be bouncing up and down ready for church. That's not what I'm talking about. But those Sunday mornings when you wake up and you say, oh man, it's Sunday. I don't know if this is happening today. And in that inner dialogue, inner monologue, however you talk to yourself, there is a sense of uh, this is going to be a matter of my planning, a matter of my schedule. And, and okay, yeah, it's Sunday morning. That's an easy one. Let's, let's pick other things, too. Let's, let's pick a regular Tuesday morning. You've got to wake up and, hey, you should read the word before you get to work because what are you going to carry into battle with you, right? Or, or there's an opportunity for a D group or there's an opportunity to witness to somebody. Whatever your expression of worship may be, or even just as David said last week, just the fact of going to work with a mindset that I'm working unto the true king and not to some false king that's taking his place in my life. As we consider the plans that we make in our own hearts and we consider returning back to business as usual, what do we do when we realize that we've been unmoved to worship? When, when we realize that worship has taken a back seat and that there are other things that we need to take care of that we think, in fact, are more important. Again, this is not about having perfect church attendance. This is not about coming to every D group. This is not about you know, going out on the streets every single Sunday morning after church and proclaiming the good news. What it's about is the state of the heart. That's why I use that word robot. They're robotic reporters. They're basically Google. Are you able to give Bible answers to people who are asking and then walk away unmoved? Sometimes I am. Return to the old grind after worshiping. Let's look at the third character here, Jerusalem. Might not have thought it was too much of a character, but we do have a response from Jerusalem here. If you go back to verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, that is, 
Where is the king of the Jews? He was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. We know that Jerusalem's trouble and Herod's trouble were very different, right? Herod's trouble, he's like, I'm losing my contrary kingdom. If this king really does show up, I'm in trouble. Everything that I've built, everything I've put together, my whole reign and rule, it's going to be gone. But Jerusalem is also troubled. Why are they troubled? Because there's so many fans of Herod in there? No, of course not. What are they troubled about? The king of the Jews is born. They're scared stiff. They don't know what to do. They're sadly silent in response to the news that the king of the Jews has been born and is born in Bethlehem. This kind of news, particularly as being carried by these extravagant individuals from the east, is not going to go unnoticed by the city. That's why Matthew points out here, Herod is troubled and Jerusalem is troubled. This was not a quiet meeting. And you can imagine, again, too, Herod really looking forward to the Magi coming in. He might have set aside something in his schedule so that he could hear what they have to say, presuming that they had some good news for him, when in fact, he was like Balaam, presenting a message that was unexpected to Balak. Jerusalem was a city that was sadly silent. All three of these groups, Herod, the builder of a contrary kingdom, the scribes, a group of robotic reporters, and Jerusalem, the city that was sadly silent, should have all been looking for and have already found Jesus. David told us last week, Bethlehem was not a big town. 300 people? That shouldn't take too long if people are seriously searching for the Messiah. At this point, Jesus may have been one-year-old, two-year-old, even three years old, perhaps. We get that from the passage after what we wrote today, when um, Herod wants to go out and kill all of the male children of two years old and younger. They had time, but they weren't looking. Our series title is Come, Behold the Wondrous Mystery. It is a wondrous mystery. It is not a mystery that comes to say, hey, all we want to do is get rid of your contrary kingdom and leave you with nothing. All we want to do is take you and punish you for your robotic mindset. Or we just want to wake you up so that you can be terrified at the God who is rightfully wrathful against all sin. Because what do we have at the center of this mystery? There's a baby if you have a friend, relative, coworker, somebody who has that mindset that God is just out here to take something away from me, to uh, wake me up and realize how terrible he is, whatever that thing might be, if they have that, that only, that, that solitary view of God as, as a judge and full of wrath, Christmas could be the best time to remind them that Jesus did not first come as a conquering king but he came as a helpless baby. That is the wondrous mystery. That is where the gospel begins. In a manger, made into a bed. Jesus given to a world full of Herods who are angry and scribes who are apathetic in Jerusalem that is alarmed and, and, and none of them have the right way to respond in worship, but the Magi show us what ought to be done. They respond in worship. Where are you this morning? Where are you as you consider your life of worship? Christ is the one who has come to show us that the joy of his gift softens our hard hearts and creates true worship inside of us. Herod's anger shows us the ultimate mission of Christ, to be the atoning sacrifice, the one to bring together God and man in right relationship, though there is animosity and there is contrary kingdoms being built. 
You see this in verse 16 of chapter 2 that we didn't read, but it comes after again. Herod's anger at this idea that someone would take something from him, would take everything from him, resulted in him saying, we'll kill all the male children two years and younger. Christ came He escaped that fate in Matthew chapter 2, but he did not escape the mission and goal that his father had given him to die as a substitute for all who would believe. The scribes' apathy shows the inability of the leaders of Christ's own people to see that this was God's plan from long ago. You might remember Luke 24, verses 25 and 26. Jesus has resurrected, and he's appeared to two disciples on their way to Emmaus. They don't even recognize him, which is kind of a funny thing. And as they're walking, they say, boy, you're scratching your heads. We don't get it. Jesus was supposed to be our king. He was supposed to come and free us. He's dead. And Jesus, again, walking with them, and they don't really know that that's him, says, are you so slow to believe everything that the prophets have written? That the Christ was going to come and die and rise again? Shouldn't this have been obvious to you? For these scribes that apathetically report robotically, hey, this is where he's supposed to be born, and then move on with whatever they were doing before, Christ comes and says, no, this is the true mission. This is why I came. Jerusalem's alarm shows the fear of people who think that their God is defeated. They don't even have a king appointed by their God. They have a king appointed by a Roman empire that is over them. Much of Jerusalem in fear simply because they don't know what awaits awaits them at the news of this king. This tidings of good news, right? This great joy. Jerusalem is scared stiff. It shows us the testimony of the wise men was necessary to all three of these groups. Because first of all, the wise men answer the problem of Herod's anger by showing that he is worthy of being sought out joyfully and casting down their own kingdoms. Remember, if they came from Babylon, we're talking about 800 miles, 40 days of a trip. That is not a cheap thing to do. And they did it. They show Herod, this is the true king, and he is worthy of us laying down our work and coming to worship him. They show the scribes that, he is, that Christ is worthy of sacrificial worship. That is, he is worthy of giving up our own apathy, our own robotic reporting, our, our own sort of, you know, again, to use Sunday, Sunday morning as, a, as an example, but not the whole, of our sort of, hey, I'm here because I'm here and this is what I do. And then I'm going to go home and do the next thing that I'm supposed to do. Christ is worthy of sacrificial worship, of, of giving gifts that, that were not trinkets, they were not greeting cards. These were kingly gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We won't get into them any further than that. They were expensive. They were the treasures that were opened up to be presented to a king. And thirdly, the Magi show Jerusalem that Christ is worthy of undivided allegiance. That though Jerusalem was alarmed by the news of the king being born and wondering, what are we going to do? We already have a king and we don't like him. And if we're going to worship this other king, then the king we don't like who doesn't like us is going to kill us. Things are going to go really poorly for us. They show, the Magi show this city and show us that Christ is worthy of our undivided allegiance. He is not just worthy of us showing up on Sunday morning or showing up at a thing or putting a fish bumper sticker on our cars or whatever that thing might be. 
that he is worthy of us giving our whole lives, laying them down before him and saying, Lord, here I am. What do you want me to do? How can I testify to this wonderful mystery of your grace? This all in light of the fact that the Magi don't even really seem to understand what Christ would come ultimately to do, to die on the cross in place of wicked sinners who deserve the wrath of God, that he would exchange his blessed position, laying down his crown so that we might be lifted up and brought into his presence and given all the benefits of sonship before God. Christ at the cross showed us that he is worthy to be king of kings and lord of lords. His resurrection shows us that he has overcome all opposition and the ultimate opposition of sin and death. Any other that would be stopping your sincere joy and worship today. If you remember, the book of Hebrews says that Jesus went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. We have joy in our passage this morning. When they saw the star, verse 10 says, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy at the opportunity to come before the king and worship him. Does Christmas spark the joy of the gospel in your life? Does it draw you to worship as Christ's birth drew the wise men? Maybe Christmas as an event, as a, as a day, as a month, as a season, maybe it has no bearing on you, but there's the message. It might not carry much weight in your experience, but the message of Christmas, the true message of Christmas, that God has come to dwell with us should produce joy that leads us to worship. How do we do that? With joy, how do we testify to the true king who's worthy of worship? Well, first of all, we need to recognize what this joy is because, again, it's not you better be skipping out of church and just hopping through life and pretending everything's okay. The Bible affirms that joy mixed with sadness is the reality of our experience here on earth because a joy that dismisses the broken world is just naive and superficial. It doesn't carry any weight. It doesn't carry the weight of glory that Christ deserves in his worship. But a joy that sees the sovereign work of God in drawing all kinds of people to worship Christ, that kind of joy is one that endures through trials because it looks to something greater. It's why we discipline ourselves in any area of life, right? Why we discipline ourselves to, to eat right or to exercise or, or to work the full job or, or to you know, paint the house, whatever that thing is that we do, we discipline ourselves to get through the rough part, the part we don't like, to get to something greater. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. Peter writes to the people of God and says, In this you rejoice, in reference to that great salvation that Christ has afforded for us. He says, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. All of us in here are grieved by various trials can't pretend like none of us are. Peter says that we're grieved by various trials, verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is what he is worthy of. He's worthy of us pressing through the trials that we face to the end goal of worship. And to not let worship take a back seat while we deal with the trials. But to let worship thrive in the midst of those trials. 
to do the hard thing, to deal with the difficult relationship, to face whatever trial that might be with joy and knowing that Christ is already victorious. That what we started with was a prophecy thousands, a thousand year be- years before this passage in Matthew 2 that showed us that Christ, the true king, was already triumphant, that his scepter would rise in Israel. So here's one thing for you to do today. Put a joy check in your life for a second. Can you recognize joy in your life in some way? And can you recognize it not in that we should be sitting here and saying, well, I had a really good week. Everything went really well. Um, Nothing bad happened. Nothing broke. Nothing, you know, whatever those circumstances might be to where we say, I'm happy, therefore here's my joy. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying that can you check in your heart for joy that is working through these trials that you're facing? That you can say, I'm ready to come, come behold the wondrous mystery and to pay the price that it takes because he's worth it. To stop building my contrary kingdom, to stop being apathetic towards the news of Christ in my life, or, or to stop just being silent and frozen with fear, to move forward with what God has for me in order to worship him, to make him great. I want to give you just a funny example my, my four-year-old's middle name is Joy, and so the other night we were driving around um, just needing something to do. Both kids have been sick. So we're driving around looking at Christmas lights, and, you know, four years old, working on letters, right, and driving through street neighborhoods, and we see the word Joy out on somebody's lawn, and we're like, oh, Nora knows that one. That's her middle name. She should know this, right? And so we stopped the car, which is really funny because eventually they came out and looked out the window like, what is that person doing? I'm like, Dell, we're looking at Christmas lights. What are you doing? Um, so we stopped the car and we're like, Nora, what does that spell? What, what does it look like? It's part of your name. Do you recognize any of the letters? And she goes, does it say Vion? <laughs> no, it doesn't say that. What's your middle name? Nora. No, 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 no. It starts with J and it rhymes with joy. Oh, yeah, joy, joy, right. She was very unable to recognize it, and she certainly wasn't thinking like, oh, this is a school activity right now. She was in there to enjoy the lights, and she wasn't able to recognize joy. A lot of ways we, challenge, we are challenged to recognize joy in our lives because we can't read it in the midst of everything else going on, can we? And yet these magi, in verse 11, when they saw the star again, they rejoice with exceedingly great joy. So in your checking joy in your life, is there something, a Christmas tradition perhaps, because it is the season? Or is there something just in life that you could put into practice that would remind you of the joy of Christ's advent and would equip you to testify to that joy? Because it is the testimony not of the joy without trial that affects people around us. It's the testimony of the joy through the trial that leads us to right worship before Christ that makes an impact on the lives around us. Last night, uh, we were talking about some of our favorite Christmas carols, and just my wife and I, and Nora again, runs into the room and says, Hark the Herald, that's my favorite, just immediately, because the right question was being asked, and she knew it. Do you know that thing? Maybe it's a Christmas carol, maybe it's a tradition, 
Maybe it's just quiet time out in the woods. I, I don't know. What, what is your thing that could create joy in your life, that could remind you of the joy that Christ has given us that the world can't take away? Can we uncover that joy and let it lead us to worship? We're going to sing, O Come All Ye Faithful. And that first line in the song, O Come All Ye Faithful, what's the next word? Joyful. And what? Triumphant. If for no other reason, be joyful this morning. That song calls us to be joyful because we are triumphant. And why are we triumphant? Because a scepter has risen from Israel. Christ's victory, his triumph is sure and accomplished. And we're just waiting for it to be fully applied. Let us worship him with that in our forefront, in the forefront of our minds. Would you bow your heads and pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you this morning that worship is not a robotic activity. It is not designed solely for us to tear down our contrary kingdoms, though it does do that. And it is not only designed for us to open our mouths and overcome our fear, but it does do all of these things. And it does all these things because Christ is worthy of all these distractions, all these things in the way of true worship. He is worthy of all of them to be defeated. Lord, we know that at the cross, overcoming sin and death and the grave, Christ has overcome our obstacles that would, bring, that would bring a separation between us and you. So Lord, this morning, may we be encouraged not to find a superficial and naive joy that plugs up our ears and pretends like nothing's wrong in the world or in our lives, but that we would embrace that worship is the thing we need to do to express that joy through trials. And that we would be willing, like the Magi, to offer sacrificial worship, to travel a great distance if necessary, to do what it takes to worship you as you are worthy. Would you make the words of this song be true? Because apart from you, we are not faithful. Apart from you, we are sinners. We are lost. We are doomed for judgment. But Christ has been faithful on our behalf so we can be faithful in him. We thank you for all these good things in Jesus' name.